This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex, film writer and assistant editor at Deadline.com. How's everybody doing out there? This is another week of great conversations. I have two, actually. This episode is going to be about Abby Ajayi. And in the other episode, that's how I'll be talking to Dana Lynn North. Now, both these women are showrunners, they're writers, they're creatives, they're black women, and in positions of power. And it was fantastic chatting with both of them because they are very inspiring. And I don't know, there's just so much positivity and goodness in these episodes. So let me talk about Abby. Abby Ajayi is a British Nigerian writer, producer, and director based in Los Angeles and London. She began her career in the UK writing on shows including EastEnders, which I used to watch religiously as a teenager, and Holly Oaks. In the US, she's worked as a writer and producer on shows including How to Get Away with Murder, The First Lady, and Inventing Anna. Now, Abby is back in the leadership position as she created and directed and is the showrunner of prime video drama series Riches, which stars Deborah Iorendi as Nina Richards. Now, Nina is the daughter of Stephen Richards, who's a self-made man who's built a cosmetics empire and became a strong advocate for black owned businesses, big or small. Now, after he has a heart attack, there's a fight for control over his empire from his children and outside entities. Everybody's at war. Now his family secrets come to the forefront in the lives of his children and his two marriages begin to collide. The show premiered on prime on December 2nd and is highly regarded among critics and as I believe it sits at a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Currently, Abby is adapting the New York Times bestselling novel, The Plot, by Jean Hanif Korolitz for Onyx slash Disney. Now, that story is really interesting because it's sort of like a cat and mouse story that revolves around Jake, a, a struggling author who commits an act of literary theft that changes his life irrevocably. And that's going to be Looks like it's going to be an eight-part limited series and will star two-time Oscar winner Mahershala Ali. So on this episode, there were some things that I really wanted to get into. And I was really curious about what it was like to be a writer in the U.S. versus being a writer in the U.K. So we talk about that. We talk about what it was like for her. Abby to work with Shonda Rhimes at Shonda Land on two of her shows. And we talk about what it's like to be a showrunner and the logistics of that and writing and directing her own series, which if I had to compare it to anything, I think it would be compared to Secession. There's a few other things that I could compare it to, but it's a really great show. The performances are phenomenal. I loved Deborah Ayorende and them, even though I didn't love the show. 
I didn't love that particular show. And so, you know, with that said, I'm going to be quiet. We're going to get into the conversation. Thank you, Abby, for uh, appearing on the Scene to Scene podcast. Uh, you know, I'm Thank glad we're on the me. same coast because yes. it is early in the Pacific. So, or on the West Coast. So a lot of my, my UK friends have been, you know, getting wind of this and talking about this. And a lot of them are really sort of excited to, to see riches. And, you know, me too, because it is so rare that we get these sort of all black cast in and sort of these these the content that comes out of the UK um is not very diverse and when it is it is you know black folks are never really the center so can you talk a little bit about you know creating riches and conceptualizing it and, you know, setting it in the UK. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, Valerie. It's, it's great to be on. Um, I think that's a, a great question. And um, I was born in London. I, I grew up in London and, and my parents will tell you I watched way too much TV from a really mm-hmm. young age. But I think, you know, almost from those, you know, young age, from, from like certainly as a teenager, it was really apparent that for the most part, with the exception of one show, Desmond's, that was on when I was quite young, the shows I watched that had black casts or even, you know, and, and or even just a prominent black central character tended to be American. You know, I grew up watching The Fresh Prince and then we'd put, watch Moesha, hanging with Mr. Cooper, that whole mm-hmm. period in which there was very little black British representation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always sort of stuck in my head, which isn't to say I didn't enjoy all the shows I was watching in the UK or the American right. exports and stuff. But it's that thing about like, you you know, a lot is made about main character energy. I certainly didn't see myself as a supporting mm-hmm. or other or not mainstream. So I've always been eager to tell those stories. And I think the appetite has always been there. But, you know, people want to be fed and you take whatever's on offer. But the hope right, is always right. that you get, you get the opportunity to tell those stories because they're meaningful to us. And if I can be obsessed with what Sam Beckett is doing on Quantum Leap or the crew of the Enterprise, I fully believe that and I want to trust audiences that having a predominantly black cast doesn't mean that they can't emotionally engage and empathize in those stories. They're human stories. And, so, you know, we're expected yeah. to do the opposite, right? When we yeah. see these casts, you know, of people who don't represent us, we're expected to empathize and sympathize with them. I mean, that's how we kind of walk through life, right? Mm-hmm. You know, navigating these different spaces. But when it comes to us, you know, there's always this sense of wonder and like, oh my God, I didn't know. It's like, well, we've been here the whole time. And uh, you know, what about the investment in, in us? And, you know, I grew, it's crazy because as you grew up sort of watching, you know, American uh, television shows, I did the opposite. I was watching like, as time goes by and AbFab mm-hmm. and, and East End oh, and, and Masterpiece oh, wow. and Twitter and stuff like that. So, you know, that's how I was able to develop this like faux British accent that I can do sometimes. <laughs> but I did, one of the things I did notice was like, these shows have no black people. Zero. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And to your point, I grew up on all those shows. I watched those shows. I enjoyed those shows. I loved all the BBC period adaptations. Mm -hmm. But my question was always like, 
I mean, where are the black people? I, I know we weren't invented in 2000 with like Diddy's album <laughs> or something. So, you know, it was, it was always a question, which is why I love history as well. But I feel like there, 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 there was a culture whereby it was sort of, you know, there's this kind of, um, it felt to me, and it, it's not, it's not untrue, this UK feeling that race is an American thing and class is a British thing. And actually, I think that dichotomy is not true at all and was mm -hmm. reflected in the ways in which there were so few black books or books by black authors published, so few, you know, mm -hmm. and it's not just black, it's it's brown people, it's Asian people, it's, it's mm -hmm. sort of the whole spectrum of like stuff. And we, we um, so in terms of conceptualizing Richard, it was important for me to um, having worked in the States for five years, say that these stories are mainstream, these stories are there and they haven't been told really on screen. Um, and that I wasn't gonna engage in that debate. You know, in the opening episode, I talk about it. I'm not, this isn't a debate for me. Black mm -hmm. stories belong on screen and I'm gonna write them. And um, when we went out to sell it, I was clear that there was no, there was no debate to be had about how we were gonna make it different or make it more mainstream, mm -hmm. their human stories. And it was great in terms of our, our first partners on board ITV. N that question never mm -hmm. even came up, you know? So I feel like it was just not allowing myself to hear that voice or doubt and the, or the mm -hmm. decade of trying and not really getting traction or interest. I want to talk a little, I want to expand a little bit about on what you said about, you know, America being a race thing and, and the British having class, class issues, because they all seem to intersect for us, right? We don't, like as Black women, we can't separate being Black and being a woman, mm. just as most people can't separate you know, race and class from the Black experience. And you are dealing with, the show seemingly deals with some of these intersections because we're dealing with, Amer you know, we're dealing with American, Caribbean, you know, UK, everybody from different backgrounds, but of the same diaspora and mm -hmm. greed. Mm -hmm. um, and can you talk a little bit about that aspect and, and how that relates to UK culture specifically. Um, because, you know, we have these conversations in America all the time. What does it mean to be a Black capitalist? What does that look like? And I don't know if that's any different in the UK. Um, I think a lot of those debates are and conversations are kind of have a global element to them because we're all talking about them. But um, to, to your point, I, I feel like your first point really about being a Black woman and not being able to separate the way these things intersect. I've always said as a Black woman, one is the ultimate cultural navigator because you're in a man's world and you're black in a man's world. You understand those stories and those narratives and how to move in that world better than the reverse is true. So, um, and in terms of like um, exploring that with riches, we, you know, it's about black wealth, you know, in terms of the, the family in London and the ways in which, you know, I think wealth when one, when one explores it on screen, in the UK context, we haven't done black wealth as much. So straight away, I was really intrigued by, this isn't Downton wealth where it's generations old. This isn't inherited wealth. This is like one generation. The money was made in your lifetime. The graft mm. and the hard work was in your lifetime. And so the fear of losing it is much more present. And also it's that thing about, you know, your skin color means that you're not gonna sort of change your accent and suddenly become posh. You know, <laughs> you'll be driving a nice car and people will be like, where did you get that car from? So we're sort mm. of heading directly confronting that way in which perceptions of what it means to be black are so narrow often. It doesn't include wealth, doesn't, sometimes doesn't include education. It doesn't include all kinds of spectrums of behavior, flaws and, and experience. 
And in terms of black capitalism and navigating that, I think it's really interesting because what I didn't want for the show was I never wanted it to feel for the audience like medicine. You know, mm. it's an entertainment, but the issues we are talking about black ownership, um, black ambition, black wealth and how that wealth trickles down into the community or doesn't trickle down. I feel like sometimes I didn't want them to feel like didactic or or sort of um, paragons, you mm-hmm. know? So that's why it's sort of in episode three, we talk about that idea in terms of like their own, in, in, you know, internal colorism, you know? Right. Are they helping the culture or are they here to make money? And I, I feel like with black characters, it's important for me, for me to show that they are flawed, to show that we're not always on the right side of whatever the debate is. And to show that even within our, I, I, I always struggle with the word community because I think that we're such a huge global diaspora, yeah. but, even amongst ourselves, there are debates as to what is, you know, mm-hmm. what is the right side of the debate? What is the right question? So like, I, I kind of want to avoid those binaries of like, this is what we think and this is what they think and da, 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 da. But actually, if you're a black capitalist on some level, you're looking at your tax returns, you're saying, who's going to serve me better? You're sometimes making choices with your checkbook rather than with this sort of perception of like, for the culture. And I, I really... I really like what you said because it's like, you know, these are universal global issues that sometimes when we get into these crazy diasporic arguments about what it means and it's like, we have different, you know, accents and are on different continents, but we are really dealing with the same issues and it's like, Mm. why can't people see that it's like every month is a different argument about something and you know, I really like the fact that you have all of these different elements together and these people are sort of working together or against one another um, because that is the human experience that is a part of life. And, you know, having, my next question is having worked on several different sort of American productions like How to Get Away with Murder, Inventing Anna, The First Lady, how did you, did you use what you learned by working on those shows and incorporate that into riches? Yeah, absolutely. I think my time working in America has been absolutely instrumental. I don't believe that, for a couple of reasons, I don't believe that I would have riches greenlit or Mm. be here talking to you without that experience. I think it tracks, in, in the first instance, in the most basic instance, it tracks to a conversation that is part of the debates we have, which is, why black Brits come to America to work. It is about the opportunity to learn, to grow, to develop your craft in a much, in an English speaking country, but in a much bigger industry and in an industry where our value is seen and utilized, you know? Um, And so on on murder um, and on inventing Anna and on for weddings and a funeral, particularly with the Shondaland shows where you write and produce your episodes. So mm-hmm. the writing is the same, whatever country you're doing it in, but in America, obviously it's more episodes. So I was in the writer's room there and working with people like Pete Noah, you know, and, and all these incredible writers who'd been on other shows. You learn how different writers break story. And then you go on set, well, you go to pre-production and you do all the prep meetings, stunt meetings, you know, mm-hmm. props meetings. And then you go on set and you work with the actors. You're working with incredible um, performers like Viola Davis, and you're seeing how a television show gets made. and so with Murder, I got to watch and work with a lot of incredible people and directors as well. And so ultimately the line for me, and then in Inventing Anna, I produced, wrote and produced on three episodes. So that line for me is crucial because in the UK, I kind of had learned how to write 
and mm -hmm. I knew how to do that. But in the States, I learned how to produce television, which I think is crucial, was crucial for me in sort of taking ownership and having a vision for, for, um, for riches. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, and also ultimately directing an episode of riches. So I think that experience is incredible and getting to produce your own episodes is, is, is so crucial. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm curious about is, you know, you started writing, you know, because of, you know, read your bio and everything, you started writing in a time where, you know, I think, you know, MySpace was the pop-in thing and social media wasn't what it was today. And with social media, social media, we know a lot of the inner workings about writer's rooms and what that looks like. But when you started, can you talk about a little bit about the changes you've seen from when you started until now? Uh, and you can talk more about UK culture because, you know, that is, you know, where I have known that you started. And so I'm really curious to hear about that. I mean, UK culture is very different um, from the US. Increasingly with the streamers, the two are kind of converging somewhere mm -hmm. in the middle of this hybrid versions. But, the, you know, in, in the way that the US kind of uh, TV grew out of the sort of, as I understand it, the radio model where it was like 50 weeks a year and then television was 26 episodes a year. So mm -hmm. long running episodes, the writer has a lot of power because you're the one steering the ship and they've already started filming. It's it's quite different in the UK where, as, as of someone who's watched a lot of UK shows, you know, often we had like six episodes max, mm -hmm. you know, which is, that, so that created a sort of different profession because the writer would write it, then they'd finish all six scripts and they'd hand it over to producers that, so the writers weren't necessarily producers. Producers are separate um, skill set. And the producers would like do all the prep and then hand it over to directors. So it was a kind of three, three-way profession. Um, and that meant, and often one writer would write every episode. So there wasn't opportunities for new writers to break in in the way that you could start on episode number 500 of Grey's or like ER, all that stuff. So fewer opportunities inevitably in the UK, um, gender-based up opportunities which is say so few women got to create their own shows and the numbers are still pretty shocking even till this day and it goes without saying you know people of color black people the opportunities are really limited so often the only way to get in was through the continuing dramas eastenders casualty but it could be difficult to get a, a foothold there um so i think it was really clear to me that you know you want to make tv when they make the most tv in a language that you speak a version of because American and English are different mm -hmm. um and so that was the U.S. and early on it was like I would you know that before I think there's a lot more information now mm -hmm. but also also a lot of information can do a lot of, can, can, a lot of information can create the illusion of knowing a lot more than one does right, so right, right. that's why I'm wear, wary about that one has to pass through the information and who's giving you the information online but when I was starting up and watching all the American shows it would be stuff like I said Ain't It Cool Scripts. I don't know if it exists anymore. There was a website called Ain't It Cool Scripts and it would have the scripts for TV shows. So at points where like Angel and Buffy were still a year before we'd get to England, I was like, okay, well, I need to know what's happened. Mm -hmm. And it's pre-Twitter. So I'd read the scripts. So even before I'd watch the show, someone had like transcribed all the scripts. So I was learning how to write from seeing scripts of shows that had been made, but I hadn't yet had a chance to watch them. So I think the key thing for me was always to find the resources. So it was like, I did a Robert McKee course. I'd find the Lou Hunter book. I really, it was very much about reading about how to write. And then slowly, slowly you find friends who are like, because I grew up in, you know, in a working class neighborhood called Edmonton in North London. 
there were no screenwriters, there mm. were no playwrights, I didn't know any novelists, so it wasn't part of my kind of community or culture. So you're sort of talking to friends who fall in love with films who are, um, you know, and you find your cohorts, like very early on Destiny of Carragher as a director I came up with, um, and she's now just done Kindred and won a BAFTA mm -hmm. at the end of the fucking world. But she was great because it was like, she loved American stuff too. So we'd swap scripts, we'd talk to each other, we'd talk about how we're progressing. Um, I think the difference now is there is a lot more information. You can Google, how do I write a screenplay? What does a screenplay for your favorite show look like? And that's great. Um, but ultimately, the fundamentals remain the same. All the information in the world won't make a difference if you're not writing. You know, you've got to be writing those spec scripts, rewriting them, writing the next one, finding peers who will, you know, if you want to write, find that director friend, then, you know, figure out that one person who will read it and give you critique um, and stuff. So the work is always the most important thing. I'm very wary of when social media becomes a crutch in which one is talking more about the work than doing the work. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's, it's really, you know, it's sort of like a really interesting uh, sort of conundrum, especially like hearing about the way things sort of operate there and what it means to be a woman in an in industry where, forget about being Black, there just aren't very many women, um, mm. you know, sort of around doing this work. And in talking about the writing aspect, can you talk also about the work environment? Um, any differences that you may have seen or that you noticed? Um, between the UK and the US? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the main difference is just, and again, that's evolved in the five years that I've mainly been in the States, but the original main difference was like, you, you're not a staffer, you're a self-employed person. So you're kind of assigned a script and you got huh? your pajamas. Yeah. Wait. So what, you're like an independent contractor or something? Yeah, 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 you're self-employed. So you do an episode, like when I did an episode of EastEnders or Hollyoaks or whatever, you're just like, you go in, they tell you what episode you're writing, you maybe go for a story conference where you meet all the other writers a few times, but mainly you're, it's farmed out to you. So you're at home in your pajamas, you type in it up and you send your draft to the script editor, they send you notes, you da 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 da. So it's, a, it was quite, it's quite solitary, which is why it was quite important mm -hmm. to build community with other people who were trying. But because it's so solitary, you're doing one episode, um, of EastEnders and then you're like where's my next job because mm -hmm. that might take you five six weeks seven weeks mm -hmm. so you're constantly so the thing is the work was important but you're constantly having to do a lot of work to land the next job as mm -hmm. opposed to the states where it's a real profession like my first time in the states I had a parking spot I had an office you know you have mm -hmm. a group of people you're on staff for you're guaranteed 20 weeks and so for 20 weeks, which is kind of almost half the year, you know you're employed on this. And the pay, the, the compensation is, again, is reflective of the fact that you're a staffer. They're buying your brain space for that time. In the UK, because you've only got one thing, you're constantly developing as much as you can to try and make sure the next thing is stacking up. So I think that sometimes could detract from the work and being focused. 
but um and then the main difference of course is in the states is you get to produce your episodes mm -hmm. you know go to get to go to set so you really learn about the consequences of what you put on the page and become smarter about that the culture again i think you know some of the difficulties which is true pretty much everywhere but felt very marked in the u in the uk just because it wasn't there's not a staffing culture as much it was just who gets to be unpaid for years and years waiting for one episode you know that's again where class comes in because you have to have that basis of money to be unpaid. able to well, if you don't get an episode, oh, you mean, yeah, year. of course, if you don't get work, um, you know, I thought you meant like somebody's an intern writing on it because, you know, when no, you say, but there's hey, a lot of something yeah, different no, no. here, you know, no, but but also, but like, so, so what I mean is like, because it was there's so few staff jobs because this one writer is writing all six episodes. A lot of the time you're a writer, but you don't have any episodes that are being made. You could work for years. I mean, I used to talk to writers where we'd like we'd been writers for five years, but nothing had ever been on screen. So Ooh. you're like talking to your parents oh. and you're like, what am oh. I, you're just, it's like an end, a car, there's no engine in it, you're writing. But but also I think part of the key part of it, your skill set as a screenwriter, you know, novel, novelist, short story writer, the words are supposed to stay on the page. You mm -hmm. know, you've typed them to some extent, you've completed the, the job. You mm -hmm. want it to be published, but the job is completed. A screenplay is a blueprint. And if you never, if you never see your work made, you never learn. So it does, it does kind of diminish one's, you know, craft skills and development. Um, the culture, I think, in the UK felt very much if you're of a certain background, upper middle class, or have a rich spouse who can like bankroll you while you're not earning for a really long time. So that that did make it feel very much a playing field that wasn't for you if you want from money. You know, mm -hmm. um, I still think it's difficult to break in UK, US, and that is still an element of it. And in the U UK, there was just decades of just if you're a black or woman go do this scheme there's always schemes and programs which don't lead mm. to any work but you're siloed into how to learn better skills and I'm like no we don't need skills we need jobs we need mm. to get to learn and mm -hmm. fail on the job just as anyone else does mm -hmm. you know I think it, it, it sort of falls into that thing about just like you know trying to get black people women anyone who's like not from a dominant group to be over skilled and over prepared, but never get to actually ignite right. and do the thing, mm. you know. Mm. Um, but then you'll be have this wonderkind with his baseball cap, who his first thing is on Netflix, and you're like, you don't need to do a scheme with five years' experience of schemes. So I, I'm very wary of schemes because I did waste a lot of time, and one of the best decisions I made in my career was like, no more schemes, not doing any more. That you say that because I'm a part of a what you would call a scheme right now, <laughs> and um, you know, I think what's changing is many are realizing especially if you get if you're a part of something that's more demographic specific um they're noticing that there is a lack of you know once once these things are over they're like well hope you got the skills you need good luck and yeah. you know, they're starting to realize like we need to offer more we need to we need to introduce you to folks we need you to get a chance to get your work out there and speak to people and all of these different things it needs to be a pipeline to right. actually doing the thing right as opposed to we've checked the box right 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 we've checked the box we've we've told you all you need to know now go out and try to apply it like you know what i mean so um another thing i wanted to talk about is assembling this cast you got uh, a cast of of power powerhouse actors and just wondering how you know that all came together um you know assembling yeah. 
going to lead and and who you know so i'm just you know especially yeah. with deborah who i kind of have a slight crush on um i mean understandable <laughs> um, understandable yeah so the casting it's that thing of again i some sometimes i have people in mind but mainly I, i'll write because i think just write the thing you want write the person you want um write the character you want them to be so but then once we start to cast it, it's always that thing especially in the uk where like it's that thing of everything has a knock-on effect if for decades you didn't make shows that had prominent or lead black characters mm. that's decades of actors we haven't seen break have the careers they should have had right. and so it creates this kind of lacuna in terms of the talent pool which isn't to say the talent wasn't there but they never got to grow and have the opportunities to be really prominent and, and you know have the careers they deserve and often obviously as I'm sure you know when you when you've got something in with a network and with a broadcaster they're like who can we cast that's meaningful you know right, who, right. Who are the names and then you're sort of in this chicken and the egg situation of like well there are no names there's sometimes no names of a certain generation because you didn't give them jobs so they could get names right, you right, know right so and so and I think that does sometimes can be really debilitating when you're writing where you're like but I can already hear the question where they're like who's gonna be you know and like and in the UK the question is like if Idris isn't gonna do it who else you know that sort of vibe right, right. But, um so very early on I was even I mean always really even even before Richard I'd always just sort of whenever I see I see an actor who I think I don't know what I just sort of pin them in my head or like have my little like IMDB star that person so wrote the script um the usual names come up and and you know mm. casting is this kind of weird roulette where like people start and you're like this is like cut your coat according to your size you know you just sort of sometimes you're like we're doing a tv thing and they're like can we get violet no one said ever said violet but you right, know right, like, no. <laughs> everyone shoots it's a real kind of shoot for the stars vibe and then right. let's get real but mm. but actually what was great was we had a list of so in terms of the you know leading lady number one on the call sheet deborah it was just we had a list of people but I'd always I can't I honestly can't remember when I first sort of found her, like out about her work and stuff but I, I I would sometimes go on IMDb you know like people would generate this list of great black actresses working or yeah you know white actors over 40 sometimes I just scroll through those really to see who do I know and I stumbled on her at one point on one of those IMDb lists and being like oh so interesting born in London American interest in work them had just landed and I was just like oh this is this is interesting so I put her on the list um hmm. and it was just with her it was this kind of weird synchronicity because you know COVID had hit but just before COVID she decided to move to London so we were able to actually do a zoom and get to know her and I think right from the start there is a natural coolness or almost coldness to Nina that I really want I think it, it sort of I always wanted that way in which she runs hot and is professionally incredibly capable but all her da daddy issues of vulnerability are kind of behind this sort of uh -huh. glass wall um and I think Deborah is sort of quite um unnervingly beautiful when you meet her in person and and there is that call but then her accent would flicker to the Britishness so that was great and really uh, really very early on she was our front runner and in terms of everyone else we had an incredible casting director in Aisha Bywaters and she just made it her mission to put people in front of us. And like, I'm, you know, I'm a TV person and film person. I'm quite mm. lazy about theater, but mm -hmm. Aisha had these people where she's like, no, 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 you need to see this person. So 
you know, I watched a lot before we had a director on board, watched all these tapes, seen just so many people. And it is incredible the talent that is out there that should kind of get a chance to shine. And their talent all spoke to it. Their talent all just kind of came off their, their tapes because it's COVID. So a lot of it was on Zoom tapes and stuff. And so what was really magical, I think, is all our top choices, well, I was gonna say they were all available. available. Some were less, more or less available than others. There was negotiation. But when we picked them, they started, they literally gelled, like when you're looking at images, they looked like a family, mm-hmm. you know? And that's something I was like, you know, I, I was, I'd been concerned that I'd have favorites who just didn't look like they could be siblings and stuff like that. But it was genuinely magical that the top choices all looked like a family. And then we could get them, you know, share them with other shows and stuff like that. Right. And, and that sort of the contractual stuff, but putting it together was just basically just watching and watching and watching lots of stuff, um, and just some really great moments of synchronicity where someone's tape just really like jumped out at you. Mm-hmm. And did you? Can you talk about some of the challenges that you experienced while bringing this to life? One of the things that I noticed <laughs> about the cast is, um, you know, every every star is of a very dark hue. And that is, I don't like to often point that out, but it's so rare to see that you, it's something that you notice automatically. And when I talk about challenges and you talk about casting or whatever, I wonder if that was part of it. Um, No, it wasn't. This is a question that's come up a lot um, because we are genuinely, genuinely, their tapes and their acting skills or the way they embodied the characters was what um, was what drew me to all of them and made those decisions. And when we send them up to the network, there were no pushbacks in that sense. Okay. But then once we'd, no, there there weren't, you know, like any of the conversations were just about like, because at this point we're casting and I've written maybe two or three scripts. Mm -hmm. And so certain things I'd have to say the question would be like but can they do this and I'm like but I need them to do this in the back half because the stories right. are still in my head so it's more about like okay remind us what you, where you're going with them do you think they've got that and on occasion I did callbacks in which I'd, I'd share scenes that hadn't yet been made it to the full script but I've had the actor do those scenes from later episodes just to prove to our financiers and our network that that thing I need them to get to I know they've got it in them um, but, but to your point about you know having dark-skinned black actors on screen it's more a case of once that was our family, um, it was like, okay, cool. We're going to have a conversation now because one of my bugbears, you know, I, you know, when you're a woman of a certain age as well, you remember those pictures from school. I went to school. It was quite mixed, but, you know, when you're next to your white peers and like the picture mm-hmm. shows up and you can't see yourself, you know, just making sure black skin is properly lit on screen and in photography yes. Yes. Is, is like, it's a basic, it's a standard. I know how critical and hyper vigilant I am about that and I was just like I am not here to be dragged by the community because <laughs> you know and, and you know it's that weird thing in film that when you're like going for the moody light and you're like and, and I knew our show would have a lot of nighttime scenes and this you know vistas of London so it was a conversation which we had with you know our, at our HMUs but mainly it was one I had with um Ollie Ollie um Ollie Russell our lead DP who did this incredible job of just like really being aware of it and making sure they're properly lit and have the bounce boards and then when I was directing episode four again it's that thing of just like you had the conversation before you even went on set 
And then my VP, Dan, was already ready with that, put a bounce board, put, you know, so it's just, I think as with all these conversations, really, as with all these questions, it's about having the conversation and having people with you who are willing to listen um, and engage with, with, with just the reality of like our job is to make whoever is in front of the camera look great. And, and also actors have a tough job and I would hate for anyone to feel unsupported that, you know, they need to be able to trust that we're doing what we say we're gonna do. And man, that's really, it's really interesting that you say that because I spoke to Anna Diop who yeah. is in Nanny. Yeah. And um on Titan. I can't wait to watch that. It's it's a really good movie. And I spoke to the director, Nikyatu Jusu. Mm -hmm. And Anna talked about her struggles with being well lit. Mm -hmm. And so it's just really interesting that you brought that up because that's not that I think it's a conversation that's starting to come up just now, which is fucking crazy. But it's a conversation that's starting to happen, which I guess it's better late than never. And what it means yeah. to be a darker skinned actor and be seen visually. So yeah. that's something it's, that, yeah. so I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a long overdue conversation. And, um, and, I, and I, I think it's important to say that with, with our company of actors, it's like they have to feel safe coming to me with questions and coming to the producers at Greenacre with questions, come to our producer one and say, I'm not sure. Because I do feel like a lot of black actors come to the work, they've been slightly traumatized by some of their experiences, whether it's having to do their own hair, you know, oh my or goodness, having yeah. to do their own makeup or having to do, and it, which isn't to say that, that those challenges don't remain, you know, but it's just like having those conversations. I was really pleased to see recently that the UK skill set was doing a big push to, to recruit um, for a scheme, but with work at the end, for more black HMUs, you know, yeah. because we, I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like in London, you don't have loads of hair and makeup people, but it's just like knowing about getting into the film industry because we need that, we need more. Um, so I think the actors have to feel they're in a safe place to talk about if they're not happy or if they have a feeling. And often they'll know better than some people, what how best how best to look how best to deal with their hair but i think with with the dps it's a real question that has to be you know i it was one i brought up in the interviews for the for the job mm -hmm. because you just you don't want to hire someone and then you go into it and they're just like i've never done this before mm -hmm. Ollie had just come off doing sex education and mm -hmm. there's a beautiful nigerian wedding in in that season he did so he'd been through it he had the conversation he had the references his lookbook made me think this is someone who has picked really mindfully images of black people to show me how he will like them and 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 really kind of support the vision what can fans expect when watching riches if you had to list like three things they can expect to see what would those things be i think they can expect oh three things well i'm gonna you didn't say three words so i'll say three things i think just really complex empowered women mm -hmm. i think that's quite key to storytelling um specific detail about the you know nigerian and black diaspora like this you know we've seen lots of family drama shows but like family business shows but the specifics of what it means to be black and african and wealthy mm -hmm. um and hopefully just some like snappy 
entertaining zingers, you know, between the characters and dialogue. Um, snappy and hopefully entertaining. Thank you so much for, for coming on the Scene to Scene podcast. Uh, Thank you, you know, having me. I'm looking for, forward to other folks being able to see riches and looking forward to the, you know, really interesting conversations that I know are going to open up because of it. I, I can't wait to hear what my UK cohorts think. And I think this is going to be a fun ride. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Valerie. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation.